Welcome to Dissecting the Frog. This is episode three, entitled Bear Your Soul. We're actually going to be talking about comics today who do just that, bear their soul, why it's funny, dissect how they were able to get away with the things that they say and continue to say, I guess. You know, comedy is immortal. You can listen to it whenever you want. Uh, before we get into it, I want to say that, I'll give you guys a little context as to why I wanted to do this episode. I do believe comics are the rare performance artists live performance artists that allow themselves the whole range of kind of entertainment value. They allow themselves to be scripted or improvisational, physical or strictly verbal, serious to like satirical, every gamut. I mean, there's, there's stand-up comics have, you know, puppeteers and illustrators, guitar acts, juggler. I mean, there's, there's a whole range of things that you can go. And I think personally, the best, the most elite comics are the ones that allow themselves to bear everything. Nothing is held back, all right? Comedy allows you to face fear. And these three men, I think, faced the biggest fear that we all have, which is opening up to people. When you're open like a wound like that, you, you're, you're going to bleed, right? And these three men, uh, I think, had the best juxtaposition, which is hilarious versus horrifying, and what I mean by that is when you're burying your soul up on, uh, up on stage during stand-up, it's like a tightrope act, right? It's a tightrope act that everybody's watching on the ground. And there is humor in it. So it's a tightrope act if you had diarrhea the whole time you're walking across the rope, right? Now, nobody's laughing while you're doing the tightrope act, right? Everybody's scared because n- nobody wants to see you die. Nobody wants to witness someone die. It's a terrifying thing for everybody. But the second you make it across that tightrope, right, the second you make it to safety, that's when the tension is released and the hilarity can ensue, the congratulations, the applause, everything, right? That's the moment. And I think that is what gives it this heightened sense of importance. Because Steve Barton, in his book, Born Standing Up, you guys should read it, it's an amazing book. But he has the best analogy for what I think uh, jokes tactile, like the, the t- uh, tactile analogy, right? A, a good joke is like a rubber band, right? You stretch out the tension, and when it snaps back, that's the joke, that's the pop, that's the laugh, right? The more tension you stretch out, the bigger the pop, right? And you can get no more, I believe, you can get no more extra tension than when you are just bearing your soul, right? And these three men, I think, do it, the best, in my opinion, or at the, the heightened level that I wanted to talk about today. Uh, first one will be Richard Pryor, Richie Pryor, who is a comedy legend. Uh, he's on, I think, every person in the world uh, talking about stand-up comedy is everyone's, like George Washington on uh, Mount Rushmore of comedy. If he's not George Washington, he's at least on everyone's Mount Rushmore. You kind of got to give it up for him. 
Uh, we're going to be talking about Richard Pryor. The next one will be Mark Marin. Mark Marin has a very famous podcast, the WTF podcast. He's been on many, many different things. Mark Marin, not only does he build tension, but man, for me personally, and we'll get into it more, for me personally, he is a drain to listen to. It is gut wrench. It's like the most, it's like an episode of The Office. It's just gut wrenching to listen to his foibles and flaws but because of that i think it makes it more entertaining for me but we'll get into it more uh later and then bill hicks the late great bill hicks who has unfortunately passed away uh that man uh bared everything and gave everything uh and we'll talk about him later but first up the great richard pryor who doesn't want to talk about richard pryor right everybody knew this was coming i had to talk about him at some point uh, Richard Pryor, a little backstory for all you guys don't know who Richard Pryor is. If you're listening to this, it'd be fucking crazy. Uh, Richard Pryor was uh, born in Peoria, Illinois, I believe. His mother was a prostitute, if I remember correctly. Uh, he grew up in like a brothel and around mafia people. And he had just so much history and stories and shit to tell the world just from his childhood growing up, but he continued to live life in a very supernova-esque way and just continued to bear his soul as it went. He was a spinning wheel just flinging off pegs but rebuilding him at the same time. It was, it was quite remarkable. Now, unfortunately, he passed away in 2005. I believe he had MS. Uh, very, very sad to lose him. Uh, I guess everybody must go, but man, he, he really changed the game and a wonderful, wonderful comic, arguably the most honest motherfucker to grace the stage ever. Nothing was off limits to this man. Uh, he talked about crack, physical abuse, sexual kinks, but from all of that range, my favorite of Richard Pryor was when he showed his emotional flaws because that's the one thing I th believe you cannot detach yourself from, right? If you're talking about an event in your past, you definitely can kind of remove yourself and have a... Uh, uh, you, you can almost play it back like a movie, but when you're showing yourself as honest as possible in the depiction and then giving your emotions up to that being able to make that funny is quite a delicate tightrope act and there was no greater tightrope act than Richard Pryor so we're going to actually listen to a clip of his that I have queued up we're going to listen to it come back and talk about it more so go ahead take a listen I 
shot the motor, the motor fell off the motherfucker, right? Motor say, fuck it. Then the police came, I went in the house. Because they got magnums too. And they don't kill cars. They kill niggas. Okay, that was Richard Pryor talking about, I can't remember which uh, wife it was that that happened, but talking about a very contentious relationship. He was like Johnny Carson. He went through quite a bit of marriages. But that joke in particular, man, I mean, Richard Pryor was telling a story that in the news, and, so, and he was known for doing this. He has his famous, I set myself on fire crack joke that I could have played. I could have played a million of them. But what I liked about this one is he was really funnier than the point that he was making. I, and that's a phrase that a buddy of mine in Kansas City kind of put in my head. His name was Gabe Perry. Is Gabe Perry. He's not passed away. But he, he always used to say, a comic should always be funnier than the point that they're making. And that joke right there, I believe sums up when Richard Pryor was all—he was always funnier than the point that he was making. That story that he told, hilarious, right? But I'm going to break it down really quick as to what exactly he said. He said, I got drunk, pulled a gun on my wife because she was leaving me, and I shot my car until the cops were called, then ran into my house because I didn't want to get shot by the cops, right? Right there, that is... That's something out of, like, my deep white trash family that everybody... Fuck f- fuck trying to admit that to yourself that you did. Like, you want to keep your skeletons in your closet. This motherfucker was going out every night and making that work in front of thousands of strangers. Like, that's an amazing accomplishment. People can barely admit to themselves that they like Cheetos, so they keep fucking eating them every year that they make a, a New Year's resolution. And, and, and he got away with it. He got away with admitting crimes with nothing but charisma and wisecracks. And that, that, that is such an impressive tightrope act. It, 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 if, if there's anything circus performance-like in stand-up comedy, other than, like, actual jugglers, if there's anything circus performance-like, it would be the type of act that Richard Pryor has just verbal spectacle, able to pull people into a, a, what should be a dark, demented place. The fact that this motherfucker had a gun, probably pointed at his ex-wife, and then shot his own car drunk on vodka. He was able to make people not only laugh at that, but be on his side. Like, how the fuck do you pull that off? And he did it multiple, I mean, this is not an isolated incident, right? This is just one of my favorite jokes of his, but that's not I that was every time I mean I heard I've never heard these jokes myself but I heard that he used to do a joke about when he was younger and he was like experimenting sexually with a dog and making it funny and this is in the 70s like now that's still pretty taboo to talk about but now we have the internet and you can kind of hide behind that persona of like man I'm just a weird guy right but he was I imagine that he was doing this in the 70s where I can't imagine that it was more relaxed than it is now on fucking a dog. You know what I mean? Just amazing. And my favorite part about that joke, personally, okay? My favorite part about that joke 
is he he opens up to you in a way that is pretty disarming to you as the audience, right? He opens up like, my wife is going to leave me, and he keeps a smile on his face. That's like charisma, but you can tell he was in a... He was in a very dark place to be drunk and pull out a gun and shoot his own car. And he he puts himself into this light of like, yeah, I was the bad guy. The cops got called. And then he completely diffuses the situation. I'm sure more shit w- went on. You know what I mean? The, there's probably more to the story. Uh, but the, the comedic genius to say, then I went back into my house the cops came, and I wasn't about to come out. And then, and I quote, because <laughs> they have magnums too. They don't kill cars. They call niggas. Like, that That dumb rhyme, like, it's a dumb rhyme, so it's just a silly goofball. Like, it's such a silly, childish, like, ah, I'm making a, a forced rhyme, right? But it's also socially poignant, right? That I mean, he just made like a yeah. I didn't want to get shot because I knew it was in the wrong. Like, and I mean, we're in 2016, and cops, some cops are uh, exercising execution style shootings, and I'm sure a drunk black man in with a magnum out in front of his car uh, with bullet holes uh, probably wouldn't have fared pretty well back in the 70s, right? So he made a social commentary, but then, even more importantly, right, next, all of that ignorant shit I just said, right? Let's get rid of politics for a second. Let's just talk comedy. Him saying that sentence after describing him being kind of a dickhead, you know, him saying that one sentence after he says they shoot niggas, right? Boom! You are back on his side. He is the underdog. He put himself in a I was wrong kind of like humbling moment. Like, I can't believe I did that. Fuck, I fucked up. That sucks. I went in my house and I wasn't about to come out because I don't think I should have had paid with my life for having my heart broken and acting wrong. I mean, the, the intelligence that has to go into how do I end this joke so that the audience is on my side. I've seen a lot of people, comics from all stages, open mic to professional, where they tell a joke, and I, I, I'm sure, I, I can guarantee I, I've had this problem too. I actually know I've had this problem too, telling uh, stories. That you wonder why it's not working, right? You get laughs throughout a joke, a story, a t- true story that you're telling, and trying to figure out, like, how the fuck, why isn't this working towards the end? Where's that big pop at the end? And it's because the audience will go with you. The psychology of the audience is that they'll go with you as long as it's funny. But they won't go with you to the end if you aren't the protagonist. You know what I mean? So self-deprecating humor, right? Self-deprecating humor uh, is great. You, you, you're humbling yourself and becoming the protagonist because you're the underdog, right? Nobody really likes for you to be the the antagonist nobody wants to follow that and that's what that joke was for the whole most of the time he, he i mean he could have probably played it off like wow my wife is terrible but nobody's gonna believe that his wife's more terrible than a drunken dude waving a magnum you know what i mean and the second that he just says ah boom gets it out right right away you're on his side the and the ability to just tight rope walk all the way across and 
and people are just terrified of like, where the hell are we going? Like, you're drunk, you got a magnum, you're yelling at your wife, holy crap, what happened? Oh, okay. Like, that. that's on a level that one can only wish to obtain. Fucking, not even obtain, you know what? I'll just say this, one can only wish to truly understand. I'm even talking to you about it, like, analyzing the fuck out of it, and I'll tell you what, when I'm sitting down writing jokes, I... Like actually thinking back, okay, let's let's put myself as the underdog. How do let's put myself as the protagonist of my own, you, you know, structure here. That's hard to remember because you're just trying to write punchlines and that whole arc. Boom. I mean, that's that's fucking fantastic. Which is why he was one of the greatest. You know. Uh, unfortunately, again, he died 2005, and we're gonna miss him. Uh, check him out. He's amazing. Let's move on, huh? Let's move on to Mark Marin. Mark Marin, yes, WTBF podcast. He was a regular on Tough Crowd. You guys will find out real quick. All the Tough Crowd guys, I absolutely adore. I'll probably talk about all of them. Um, I might do an underrated comics uh, thing, and a lot of those Tough Crowd guys are going to be on there. Excuse me, I had to take a drink of my tea. Um, Mark Marin. Uh, I believe Mark Marin's graces lie in his unflinching honesty on his, like, neurosis and, oh, his, like, inner monologues, right? Now, there are a lot of ways to bear your soul, right? And some people do it, like what I said Richard Pryor did. He had shit in his past that he talked about that, you know, a lot of people uh, wouldn't like to admit you know, they, they wouldn't like to admit that they grew up in a broth or wanted to fuck a dog or they shot a car with a gun, right? Those are events, right? Mark Marin, what I enjoy about him is he admits the things that is hard for people to admit about themselves, right? Their inner demons, their fucked up psychology, you know, getting into situations that are, that you know are ridiculous and you kind of want to, shame, there we go. Mark Marin has no inner shame, right? Which is why I said at the beginning, for me, it's personally hard to listen to him. Not because I don't think he's funny, but it, again, it's like watching an episode of The Office where it's like, holy fuck, like, how are, you really got yourself into this situation? Like, it, he's, he's his own worst enemy. There we go. If I had to, if I had to sew up his uh, comedy as a little bow, he's his own worst enemy, and you're with him all the way, but what Marin does, which is great, so I'm going to kind of counteract what I just said about Richie Pryor, right? Richie Pryor put himself as the protagonist at the end of his joke. Mark Marin, some fucking how, is both the antagonist and the protagonist. He he almost has like two different sides or he's, it's like he's telling it about somebody else and you keep coming back like, oh, this is you, right? He's always the goose, but you're always rooting for him. He's like a Charlie Brown character. Now, before we listen to uh, his clip, uh, which is off of Thinky Pain, uh, his new Netflix thing, I know some people are going to be like, why'd you choose Mark Maron, right? Why, and why not Richard Lewis? And the honest answer is because I wanted to show you guys that I listen to contemporary comedians. That's the only thing I got. Richard Lewis and <laughs> Mark Merritt, very different comedians. I got to give them both their dues as individuals, very unique voices, but I listen to them the same. They are both gut-wrenchingly like awkward to listen to. And I was, I was going, ah, should I list up Richard Lewis? 
now let's talk about Mark Maron. Let's let's dive into somebody, uh, you know, a little a little newer. The guy's fucking fifty. I know Richard Lewis is like seventy or whatever, but uh, I have much respect for Richard Lewis. Just going to talk about Mark Maron. So let's give Mark Maron a listen. Uh, this is from his Netflix original special, uh, Thinky Pain, I believe. So give it a listen. I was in college. I was a sophomore in college, and. Uh, Somewhere about a month or so before Christmas break, I decided that I had MS. <laughs> so I started calling my father, I'm like, Dad, I have MS. And he's like, You don't have MS. I'm like, How do you know? How do you know? You haven't examined me. I don't know how you would know that. He goes, I know you don't have an MS. He goes, What are your symptoms? I'm like, I don't know. My, my hands are tingly. So like, you don't have MS. Are you drinking coffee? I'm like, I drink coffee. It's probably coffee. It's like, no, I have MS. And then, okay. So I hangs up. And then like a couple weeks later, I'm like, I call him up. I'm like, I have MS. I'm still have MS. <laughs> He's like, you don't have MS. And then, and then that ends that conversation. And then like a week before, like or maybe yeah, a week before, I call him up and I'm like, Dad, I have prostate cancer. I have prostate cancer. He goes, how do you know? It's like, I don't know. It hurts down by my balls and stuff. And like, I think I have prostate cancer. It kind of hurts my, my, on my butt cheeks and stuff. <laughs> and he's like, you don't have prostate cancer. I'm like, I do. And then I called him every day for a week. So like, I have prostate cancer. I have prostate cancer. It's like, you're too young for prostate cancer. I'm like, I know I have it. <sighs> so I get off the plane when I go home. It's like six or seven at night. And my father says, we're going to Bob Rosen's house to get you examined. This is a urologist friend of his. So he's taking me to a man's house to be examined for prostate cancer. So he picks me up at the airport. He's like, no, we're going now. I'm like, I don't think that's, why can't I just go to his office? No, you have prostate cancer, we're gonna go now. So we drive to this guy's house, who he doesn't know we're coming, so. We walk up to the door, my father knocks on the door, and Bob literally is like, he shows up, he's got a napkin, he's wiping his mouth, I see his family's at the dinner table. My father goes, my son thinks he has prostate cancer, can you take a look? And Bob's like, uh, I don't know, what do you mean? Uh, what do you? He's well, well, come on in, and then we, he goes back to the table, he puts a napkin down, and then he walks me and my father into his bedroom, and I'm, we're all standing there. I'm like, this in any other situation would be illegal. Whatever's happening, whatever's about to happen, this is bad. And thank God Bob says, uh, you know what? He should probably come to the office. I don't think this is the place to do this. And my, my father's like, are you sure? Is that all right with you, kid? I'm like, yeah, it's probably better. All right. So Bob didn't finger bang me in his bedroom. <laughs> with my father watching, nonetheless. All right, that was Mark Barrett uh, talking about his uh, hydro, uh, hypochondria <laughs> and how he got over it, which is, I mean, he got, he got it again. Like I said, he is his own protagonist and antagonist. He, you're rooting for him to have some justice, but it's his fault that he got into it. Like, his dad's not the problem to make him go over... I mean, kind of. I guess his, his dad was trying to teach him a lesson, but it's like, yeah, get outside your own head. You're fine. You're, you're not dying. You don't have prostate cancer at 12 years old, you fucking weirdo. 
um, my wife is a therapist, and th- this is an honest, this is a real honest thing. Uh, my wife is a therapist, and if I ever want to have an idea of what her day is like, like day to day at her job is like, I have this image that I'll just pull one of Mark Maron's specials up on Netflix, then put the TV on the couch, like flip it on its side so it looks like he's laying down, just grab a notepad, and start listening. Because almost every one of his specials is just stream of... It, 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 he has jokes, right? When you, when you know what to listen for, you can hear the jokes, which is where the punchlines are. But man, they, they are so well uh, how infused into this like stream of consciousness. Like, I, man, I, I just got to get this shit out type thing. Like, I do enjoy watching... And a lot of times... Especially lately, like in his early career, he would uh, stand up, you know, stand up comedy. But he he sits down on the stool a lot now, and it's slowly becoming more of a therapy session without losing its edge or wittiness, which I find quite beautiful. But he, Mark Marins, somehow pulls off the "you're a despicable, weird, neurotic fucker" that. I'm sure. I I'm sure in conversation, uh, it, it maybe maybe it's more of a character than I think, but I doubt it. I, I've I've heard him enough uh, in interviews and stuff that he he is so socially awkward and in his own head, and in conversation, I I am sure I would find him almost unbearable to talk to. I'm fine. I'm sure I would find him pleasant and very nice, but taxing. I guess is the best thing to say but on stage i find him riveting and enthralling and to to be able to take god it's, it's almost like psychological judo you're taking the thing that most people would find taxing about you and making that a strength in your job like who does who who has that ability and i think that the way i think the way he does it right is he creates a surge of empathy. And he doesn't try to put it in a perspective that you would relate to. I think the way he does it is he does it, he, he says his stories and his jokes. So this joke about being a, a boy and a hypochondriac, he is so self-deprecating to himself. And I, I feel like this is indicative of all his jokes. Not all of them, but, but most of them, okay? I think... We feel as the audience, he is so self-deprecating, and and beats himself up, and uh, you know goes after him and feels so much self-loathing that he becomes his own bully. So we're there, like mentally, not verbally, but mentally, we're sticking up for him. Like, no, you you're right, and that's kind of where we get behind him. So, and that's what I was saying, like, he's his, he's his own antagonist and protagonist. The, the antagonist is Mark Maron on stage. The Mark Maron in front of you is the guy that you're like, hey, come on, don't, fuck, don't fucking be so mean, right? And the protagonist is the Mark Maron in the joke. So when he's talking about himself as a kid, you know, he's beating himself up of like, who the fuck does this? I can't believe, oh, my dad, whatever. And you're sitting there going like, no, little little Mark, I'm, I'm sure he had a, all the reason to 
you know, think that he had prostate cancer, like a little fucking weirdo. He has a joke later in that special where he talks about Little League and he he literally talks to Little Mark and just shits on himself. He's like roasting Little Mark. And the whole time you're laughing. You're laughing because this old mean man is being mean to this young innocent boy who doesn't exist he's not there there's no boy there but you you feel for mark from how much he's just emoted all all through a set all through his career he yeah he i'm thinking about it right now but i really feel like he's his own worst enemy is what you could say about his comedy his own worst enemy is himself and that makes a great juxtaposition between his comedy and tragedy it, and which makes for great comedic fodder. And again, a tightrope. He, it's, he, it's like, it's like the Prestige. He, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie, but Prestige. Spoiler alert. Prestige, I believe, is, uh, uh, Christian Bale has he has this machine that clones him, and so he does this trick that Hugh Jackman can't figure out. But what keeps happening is one guy will go in there into this machine it clones him the bottom drops out and then he drowns in a you know a big tank of water to get rid of the clone and then the original one uh go like leaves out of whatever and goes upstairs and that's how he does the trick but that's the huge like Shyamalan twist is like how does he keep doing this trick well he has to sacrifice a clone of him every single time to make this amazing trick and i wonder if that might not be the perfect analogy for mark Marin's set he sacrifices a virgin of him a virgin a vir- well a, a vir- virgin and you know he was 12 years old but a version of him every time so that way we can laugh and he can be the bad guy and sacrifice the, you know, the good guy, right? And it just keeps happening, 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 which is maybe why he's so tortured and always beating himself up. Mark, you're doing great, man. It's, it's, a, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty unique perspective that I, I, I very much enjoy watching, even though, oh, God, it, it, <laughs> I roll around in my gut like, God, these are so awkward. It's a, it's, it's a one, wonderful, wonderful uh, style of comedy that I very much enjoy, and I hope that he lives so much longer. Him, Richard Lewis, you too, buddy. Keep going. I, I love love that style, you awkward motherfuckers. Uh, now let's move on. Move on to the late great Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks, uh, for all of you who don't know, was a wonderful comedian. He also unfortunately passed away. He was born in Texas. I uh, believe Austin. I'm pretty sure I'm wrong on that. But he's born in Texas. He died, unfortunately, in 1994 of pancreatic cancer, I believe. Uh, very, very sad. He, he wasn't, it wasn't his time to go, but, you know, nobody gets to choose. This man, oh, man, uh, Hicks never backed down from his beliefs at all. Uh, if, if there was anybody who stood with fucking brass balls every time it was this man and he was unflinchingly honest with his thoughts um this guy all right so if we say that richard pryor was uh unflinchingly honest with his past and his actions right and mark maron is unflinchingly honest with his inner monologue and his uh, 
mental foibles, right? The stuff that's hard to admit to ourselves. I would say Bill Hicks is unflinchingly honest with his opinion. And bear, and he bared his soul, man. He this this man he did so much on like conspiracy theories and shit. And this was back in the 80s, right? This was back when fucking neon ties and shoulder pads and you know, the the cliche Oh, I hate my mother-in-law type stuff was going very vanilla type comedy was going on. And he started coming out there dressed in all black, real stick up his ass, just laying it to the man. Uh, He and he he came out not only like that. Right. So I'm sure there was other comics coming out there, you know, being the bad boys of comedy. But I think what set him apart is. You know, anybody can play the bad guy, right? Anybody can play the guy that's just telling it how it is, right? Hicks went even further than that. He wasn't telling it how it was with a spoonful of sugar. He was telling it how it was to him and how everyone should see it. So going back to conspiracy theories, this motherfucker talked about John F. Kennedy assassination, made a joke out of that. Uh, the thing that happened in Texas, uh, the, uh, I should have fucking researched this, but the, uh, thing that happened in Texas where they, uh, oh, wake, I think it was Waco where they stormed the compound and killed everybody, made a joke out of that. And then he made jokes out of, uh, marketing. He he demonized kind of capitalism and marketing and had a great joke about Coca-Cola. This man had so many jokes that, really pulled back the veil on society, which, you know, I I don't want to say because I think that limits him. I think it more so what impressed me about him, and still continues to this day, is the man was so unflinchingly honest about his opinion. It's very rare, and, you know, take it for what it is for me, it's very rare that... There are, you get any comics that give you 100% of their opinion uh, in their set. A lot of times you'll get, I'm not saying anybody's not doing it. I'm just saying he may have been the first uh, that did it to the extreme that he's doing it. Now, there's probably others that are doing it now, but he he not only challenged you, but you could tell he challenged himself. He talked a lot about mushrooms and you can tell that he almost did mushrooms to get more perspective, right? When you challenge yourself so hard that you feel like you need to tell the world, that is a unique perspective. Now, let's get into how the fuck he pulled it off. The quick answer is, a lot of times he didn't. But I think that's what made him even better, right? I've heard so many interviews from himself. You can go look up these interviews, but where he and he's even got a joke about it, where he he seems to only play the places where uh, aliens abduct rednecks and dumb shits, right? He 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 didn't go over very well for very long. He he actually later became a cult kind of cult comedian. I'm not taking away. He's very very funny. He was funny in his own time, but. He didn't get bigger until after his passing, unfortunately. But I think it's because people became hungry, right? So in the 80s, comedy was still pretty new because it was becoming mainstream. And 
people needed to be spoon-fed ideas, right? They were used to only seeing, like, I Love Lucy and The Tonight Show. You know, comedians come on there. Everybody's got to be TV clean. Bill Hicks was not this guy ever, right? He even famously went on Letterman, I believe in 1992, 91, went on Letterman, did a set, and... uh, they pulled it. They they didn't let him do it. He he talked about religion. Uh, and in comparison to today, it wasn't that bad of a joke. It was talking. I think I can quote it pretty well. He said, uh, "I don't understand why Christians wear a cross. Uh, it's not a symbol. I think when Jesus comes back, he wants to see right." And then he said, <coughs> "He said." Yeah, I don't think anybody's walking up to Jackie Onassis with a gun saying, hey, remembering Johnny, Jackie Onassis is uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, late wife. Okay. So you guys get that joke, right? He said that, and they were like, nah, you can't do religion. Don't talk about Jackie Onassis. And they pulled it, right? So even towards the end of his career, he was still pushing his very strong opinions and just being as brutally honest as possible, right? And that's something to not turn your nose up at. And to make those things funny, man, I, I'm, I still have... So out of all three of these guys, right, I can dissect the fuck out of anybody. Out of Bill Hicks, that one's the one that really kind of makes me think more than anybody else on how he pulled some of the shit that he pulled off. And that's why the easy answer is that a lot of times he didn't, but... The, the the real answer is that he did. He really did pull this shit off. He, it, it's almost like he just bared, he was like a marathon runner. He just bared through it and figured out the right way to tell an audience and have the most, uh, the most impact. And so many people were just, refre- like, like he just pushed through and said the truth so much and just kept pushing and kept pushing and just kept walking, right? Just fucking marathon runner. That he slowly just became for not not in a dumb way, but slowly became like Forrest Gump. You know that scene in that movie where he's just running just because he's fucking doing what he's doing, right? And slowly people start getting behind him and by the time he wants to go home, which is Bill Hicks's uh death in this analogy, uh or metaphor. Uh, you know, he's got this huge fucking crowd behind him, right? He wasn't trying to change anybody's mind, just like in that Forrest Gump scene. He wasn't trying to do anything. He was just doing what he was doing, and people were looking for meaning, right? Now, the difference is you can get fucking meaning out of Bill Hicks because he he was figuring shit out for himself, right? And just going up and exploring not only his inner universe, but his outer universe for all of us. And he was unflinching about it. And that's the only thing I can think comedically, like psychologically towards a crowd, how he was able to pull everybody in, right? He found, you know, he'd go to uh, Dallas, Texas, right? He'd do his show in front of, let's say, 300 people, right? Out of 300 people, he'd get 150 of them, right? Then he'd go up to... Uh, Boise, Idaho, and then get another 75. Then he'd go to New York and get another 400. You know, he just kept building, kept building this little cult following, and people just wanted to hear the truth from him. He's the only comic I can think of where when I try to analyze him, the only, the best answer I can think of as to how he made his ideas work was 
pure grit and determination, right? Because there, there's no other way I can think, like little psychological tricks or nuances of making some of the things that he was saying fuck palatable, right? Palatable would be accomplishment on its own. He went above that, and he made it fucking funny. Like, anybody can go up there and make some, make some people agree with you and just say shit. But to then layer it on as a true stand-up does and make something funny is, is quite, uh, quite spectacular. And I will study all three of these men for the rest of my comedy career because if I ever want to get past some of the shit I've had in my life, I'm going to have to learn to bear my soul. And you know what? I, I know we were talking about uh, how to make things funny and when you bear your soul and be just the most humorous fucking person on this tightrope. But tonight we're going to end on Bill Hicks uh, saying something very poignant that I want all of you guys to listen to, to remember that, uh, again, none of this matters. This might become the theme of this show. None of this matters. It's just something I love and I hope you love. Uh, I adore comedy, I adore comedians, and I adore jokes. Uh, and I adore you for listening to this, but when it comes down to it, maybe this is nihilistic, but all we have is what we, like, what we put meaning into it. None of this fucking matters. It's all, if I can quote Bill Hicks, just a ride. And that's what we're going to go out on. The late, great Bill Hicks giving you his unflinching opinion and bearing his soul to you with the accompaniment of a piano. So I love you all very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dissecting the Frog. I will see you next week. I love you all. Good night. The world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real because that's how powerful our minds are. And the ride goes up and down and round and round. It has thrills and chills and it's very brightly colored and it's very loud. And it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time, and they begin to question, is this real, or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered, and they come back to us, and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride, and we kill those people. We have a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up! Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account and my family. This has to be real ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok? But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear once you put bigger locks on your door, buy guns, Close yourself off the eyes of love. Instead, see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride. Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over. Not one human being excluded. And we can explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace.